1: Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast, I'm Dave Hendon I think most people agree last week's episode was no good Uh, I kept a low profile all week, but we're back Uh, Let's be clear, we've done rotten shows before, it's not stopped us coming back This week's I think will be better, because this week we're celebrating the return of Snooker to mainland China That's why this episode is a day earlier than normal, because I don't normally do previews of tournaments But uh, the Shanghai Masters is back and uh, as I say, the first uh, tournament in China for four years since uh, the pandemic hit. So I think it's only right to just have a look at the uh, the matches and the tournament in general. The problem with previews is they can be out of date very quickly. So, you know, if you listen to this on Wednesday, you know, the tournament's already been going a couple of days. But uh, hopefully people will listen before it starts on Monday. And uh, we're just going to have a look at uh, some of the matches and some of the sort of uh, the narratives that might be in play. And also a, a sort of reflection in general on on... Snooker in China, and uh, the sort of history and, and where it is right now. Then uh, we'll have our jokes section, which is a runaway success, as everyone I'm sure will agree. And then we'll have some emails in the second half of the of the episode from our uh, listeners. So that's uh, the bill of fare for today. I was actually at the first ranking event staged in Shanghai. Um, of course, the Shanghai Masters now is not a ranking event, but I was at the first one in 1999. It was called the China International at the JC Mandarin Hotel. And what was so significant about that? The four semi-finalists were all Scottish. It's the first time that had ever happened. I don't think it's happened since. So it was quite um, historic. It was uh, John Higgins, uh, Stephen Hendry, Alan McManus, and Billy Snaddon. People remember Billy, uh, terrific player, and uh, he was known as sort of Hendry's practice partner. But on on that occasion, he got to the final. John Higgins won the tournament uh, in uh, in a fine city. But of course, this was before the boom. Really, the boom started in the mid two thousand two thousand and five when. Of course, Ding Junhui won the China Open in Beijing when he was just 18. That started the boom that's led to the investment, that's led to all the Chinese players joining the tour. And the Shanghai Masters came on the tour a couple of years after that, 2007. Dominic Dale was the first winner. Uh, I seem to remember he serenaded the Chinese media afterwards with a little bit of my way. whether they wanted it or not, Ricky Walden he had a terrific uh, run in the in the tournament two thousand eight. Ended up beating Ronnie O'Sullivan, but he'd beaten pretty much uh, hall of famers every round. He'd beaten Davis, Hendry, Selby, Robertson. I mean, just basically, I mean, if Ray Reardon had still been playing, he would have beaten him. And he beat O'Sullivan in the final. That was a big upset because Ricky had never won a tournament before then. O'Sullivan did win it two thousand nine. Then uh, Ali Carter, Mark Selby, remember that against Mark Williams, the the uh, red or pink incident, that that long. Uh, discussion about what ball had been hit. Uh, John Higgins made that great comeback against Judd Trump in 2012. Ding to the delight of the fans in 2013. Stuart Bingham, 2014. And, of course, that's when he was establishing himself as a, as a major tournament winner, won the World Championship at the end of that season. Kyron Wilson, real kind of upset win, really, in 2015 against Judd Trump. Ding again in 2016. And then the start of three wins for Ronnie O'Sullivan. He won the last ranking event version in 2017. He beat Judd Trump 10-3. Safety in that match, I remember, it was immaculate. Brilliant tactical masterclass from O'Sullivan. And then it became uh, an invitation event. He beat Barry Hawkins 11-9 and then Sean Murphy 11-9. So close finals, but O'Sullivan very much on top in Shanghai. Now, when it comes to uh, the tournament this year, it's a little bit kind of like the Masters in London, a Chinese version of that. Not quite the same format because it's, yes, it has the top 16, but it also... Quite understandably, they've given four places to Chinese players and then four places to wild cards, so young players. And wild cards have always been a feature of Chinese events. Many of the, the Chinese players that we've seen over the years began as wild cards. Ding Jingwei, actually, another tournament in Shanghai, the 2002 China Open was a wild card. He was 14 and uh, he played Mark Selby and took a couple of frames off him. Mark was uh, a teenager himself. But uh, anyway, so <coughs> we've got our field. Now, the, the draw hasn't quite been completed yet. On Sunday at the opening ceremony... They're going to draw the four young wildcards against four of the established players. So we don't know the exact uh, lineup yet, but I'm just going to have a look at. Well, we'll start by looking at the the players who um, are in that hat. We've got uh, they're, they're, these are unknown quantities for sure, but we've got uh, Deng Hao Hui, Dong Hao, Bai Yulu, and Gong Zi. Of course, Bai Yulu is a female player and very highly rated. It'd be interesting to see who she draws. So the four players who are going to draw. One of these. We've got Ali Carter, John Higgins, Hussain Vafai and Robert Milkins. Of course, Carter, a former winner. His season hasn't really got going yet. He's not really uh pulled up too many trees. So he'll be looking to uh, to uh correct that. I think the same can be said for Robert Milkins as well. But what uh, a great tournament to be in. I mean, you look at where Milkins was a couple of years ago. The idea that he would get in an event like this seemed fanciful, frankly. So he'll be looking forward to it. Hussain Vafai, hopefully... Has not had any sort of visa issues and, and so on and can actually concentrate on playing, which was not the case in Germany at the European Masters. And John Higgins, I thought, at the European Masters was superb. I thought he really looked good. Only just lost that semi-final 6-5 to Judd Trump. Higgins, a former winner in Shanghai. He's well aware, I think, John Higgins, that this is a big season for him. And uh, if his mind is sort of um, right and he's set on having a good year, every chance that he will do. And I think he could be dangerous in that little section. Uh, but of course they don't know who they're going to play yet. The four matches we do know in round one, and this is a a very interesting one, Jack Lazowski against Zhou Yulong. You know, not an easy one to call. These matches, by the way, best of eleven. Um Zhou Yulong, a player who has sort of knocked on the door a little bit. He's seen other Chinese players do well. Of course he's been in finals, he was in one last season in Belfast. And Jack, the way it goes on for a title. If he won this one, I mean, my word, what a tournament to win with the, with the quality of the field, because there's literally no easy matches to be had, you know, from from where he starts in the draw against Yu Long. Uh, whoever wins that plays Judd Trump. So, you know, it, it's, it's going to be tough all the way. Um, but Jack's, Jack's obviously, you know, he's, we like him in the UK, but he, he does seem to have a big fan base in China. That may help. Um, we'll see. Uh the other matches, we've got Ding jun against uh, C. Wei. Now this, I think he's probably the pick of this round. Uh, Ding, obviously, is the established elder statesman of, of Chinese snooker. And C. Wei, the new star, semi at the World Championship. Um, and that's an interesting one because playing Ding in China for the Chinese players is not always that easy, I don't think. Um, because they sort of almost feel the weight of history. They all look up to him. And, you know, they, they're aware of his great performances there. He's won plenty of tournaments in China. Just three meetings between them. C does have a win over Ding in Gibraltar a couple of years ago. Uh, the last meeting in Turkey, uh, which, which Ding won. 5-4. In fact, both Ding's wins have been in deciders. So, not, not sort of, um, particularly significant head-to-head, I don't think. There's not, uh, not much in it. Now, one player who has actually dropped out of the top 16, but he was in it. When this cut-off was made, and that was after the Championship League, it's Gary Wilson, and he's up against Fang Zheng Yi, who is a player who really does blow hot and cold. Obviously, he's won a ranking event, but at other times, he's been a little bit quiet. He did qualify for the Crucible fan this season. Oh, sorry, last season, this year. Uh, they played, actually, uh, in the China Championship qualifying round back in 2018, so five years ago. For, for what it's worth, Wilson was the winner then, but I think Fan has certainly improved since then. And the other match that we definitely know about in this round is Mark Williams against Pang Junjoo. Now, Pang, I, <laughs> I rather rashly... I was asked by World Snooker Tour on the website to, to, to do some predictions and who's going to be the next first-time ranking event win. I went for Pang, and to be fair, he's not had a good season. <laughs> a little bit of a jinx from me. He's not had a good season so far, really. Of course, he did get to a final last season, the WST Classic, and qualified for the Crucible and, and seemed to be improving all the time. But then you've got to sort of take that and, and continue to improve and if you look at the season he's had he did actually win his group at the Championship League but then he lost second round of European Masters he lost in qualifying for the British and English Opens he has qualified for the Wuhan Open beat Stan Moody 5-1 so he's going to be there Mark Williams he's never played him before but obviously we'll know all about him Mark uh, a player historically who's had a lot of success in Asia I think he's won something like six ranking events in Asia uh, including Shanghai back in 2002. He beat uh, Anthony Hamilton in the China Open final, 9-8 from 8-5 down. I remember that very clearly. I was there for that one as well. Uh Mark, you know, he's got close a little bit over the last couple of years to winning another tournament. Obviously, the Masters final last season, but even before that, the World Semis and Tour Championship was close. Masters, Semis was close the season before last. So he's still producing good quality snooker. Um and you have to make him favor for that but it'd be interesting to see how these these chinese players get on um ding is a top 16 seed so we've got cj we pang jun Zhou long and fang Zhengyi. four very talented players how many of them will get through to the last 16 and of course waiting in the last 16 we've got the real big hitters the top eight seeds and uh, well let's start with the the number 1 Ronnie o'sullivan now at the Shanghai Masters has not been held since 2019, but he's not lost in Shanghai since 2016. The last player to beat him there, Michael Holt. <laughs> Michael Holt back in 2016, because not on the tour now, but he actually beat him three times that year in various tournaments. And uh, But since then, O'Sullivan's won. He won the last ranking event version and the first two invitation event versions in Shanghai. It's a city where he seems to enjoy playing. Uh, I think he's well looked after there as well. And it's in his interest to go. I mean, he's been talking about wanting to end his career in Asia, it has to be said, he's not played that much snooker in China over the years in the sort of, uh, the last decade. I mean, you look at the, the sort of the key period from 2012 to 2019 when we had four or five tournaments a year then. I look back at his record. He played four international championships in that time, three China Opens and one World Open. Didn't play the Wuxi Classic. So, you know, wasn't exactly, uh, a regular in China, but he, from what he's saying, he wants to change that. And certainly, he's always well-supported there. I mean, he's well-supported everywhere, but there is a kind of... There's a certain awe about seeing him, I think, out in China. The fans really do love him. And that may inspire him. I mean, we saw in Hong Kong last year, it inspired him to win that uh, invitation event, the Hong Kong Masters. Could play Ali Carter in uh, in, in his first match. And of course, it will be his first match of the season. The last match he played on tour was way back in April when he lost to Luca Brussel when Brussel had that extraordinary final session when he won all seven frames. So... Be interesting to see what sort of shape Ronnie's in. You know, we've not seen anything of him at all uh, in all these months. And first match of the season. Well, I don't know. You feel it sort of sink or swim a little bit. Any rustiness could be exploited. Equally, if he plays great, I don't think anyone would be surprised because it it is a a part of the world at Shanghai, where clearly he is. Well, it's the grand stage, isn't it? And and that's where he belongs. So he'll be, uh, I'm sure, looking forward to it. Kyron Wilson, is next in the draw, could play John Higgins, of course, who, who rather battered him, let's be honest, in the World Championship. They did a little exhibition, actually, the other day in China and were sort of mobbed by the fans there. Uh, again, there's excitement in China for, for the top players coming back to that part of the world. Uh, Kyron, again, you know, he's a player who, who's won this tournament before when it was a ranking event, who can win any tournament, but equally... He's had a few disappointments in the latter part of, of events coming, coming up short in finals. So, you know, it's a big week for him if he could really establish himself by winning a tournament full of the other big names in the sport. Also in that half mark, Selby, who will play say, the same for Faye if Faye beats a wild card. Selby played well in Germany. Lost to Barry Hawkins in the semis, but the Hawk produced probably his best performance of the tournament in that in that match. So Selby's you know looking good. He's got a good record in China actually. I mean it's not a ranking event, but he's won more ranking events in China than any other player. Seven. Next on the list is Ding with six. So Selby's got plenty of uh, silverware from that part of the world himself, including Shanghai 2011. And uh, Judd Trump, he's been the runner-up, of course, in Shanghai a couple of times. As I say, could play Lazowski or Zhou Yulong. So that's a very tough top half of the draw. Sullivan, Wilson, Selby, Trump, possibly Higgins, <laughs> Ali Carter, Vafai, Lazowski. But, you know, it's all the top players, so it should be tough. Trump, uh, yeah, he played good stuff, I thought, in Germany. Obviously lost in the final. Maybe a bit disappointed with his performance in the final. But overall, if you look at the centuries tally, made 14 centuries Um and I look back last season, he made his 15th. It was actually, I think, the maximum in the Champion of Champions final. And obviously, that was November. This is only September. So, he's already just signs a better already early season that he's feeling good, scoring heavily. Uh, bottom of the draw, Mark Allen will play either Gary Wilson or Fang Zhengyi. Uh Allen, again, yet to really get going this season. Obviously, Tep new produced that great performance against him in the... Uh, in the uh, last tournament, the European Masters, he was complaining this week, Alan, that uh, he doesn't feel he's being sort of promoted enough. I think that's a, a rather not bit of a non-issue for me. All of that, he said that he's world number three, and his name wasn't mentioned on a tweet. But the t- I looked at the tweets; they were it, it was advertised at the English Open, and frankly, Mark Allen is not going to be the first player you think of to sell tickets in Brentwood. They they picked Ronnie O'Sullivan, the world number one, Luca Brecel, the world champion. And the defending champion, Mark Selby, obviously in Belfast at the Northern Ireland Open, where his defending champion, Mark Allen, will be the main man. He'll be the uh, the first player they mention. So I don't think he was being ignored. And, and I think, you know, people chimed in and, and had their own opinions. But in my experience, the players are not necessarily marketing experts. Um, and also, I, I do feel he could have just gone to World Snooker if he had a concern about it. He didn't have to put it on social media. Uh, I'm actually going to defend them on that. I don't think that they did anything wrong. But he'll be looking forward to, of course, you know the fact that he's now top four in the world. He's not having to play the first round of the event, which he probably would have done a year ago. He'll be going there, I'm sure, confident and looking to start this season as he did last season by, you know, winning tournaments. Neil Robertson could play Ding, could play C.J. Wee. Uh, Robertson again, you know, not really got going yet. I mean, it's very early season. Not played. Uh, he's only played two matches. He lost to, to Wu in Germany. And then, uh, he made his 900th career century in the Wuhan Open qualifiers. Uh, if he plays Ding, that'll be a very interesting, I think, because that's the sort of match I th- I'm sure Robertson would feel where you'll be testing sort of where your game is against another very established winner. Sean Murphy could play Robert Milkins, of course they played in the Welsh Open final. Um, Sean lost to, uh, Ben Mertens, of course, in qualifying for the Wuhan, Wuhan Open, so, uh, we look into, Sort of bounce back immediately. And then finally, Luca Broussel, the world champion, he's up against Mark Williams or Pang Zhengju. Uh, of course, as ever, and we've said this already, Luca Broussel under the microscope a little bit, his results being followed keenly. But I think we saw at the European Masters that actually, that was not a bad thing. Um, he actually said that, that he, it forced him to really sort of focus in some of those early matches. Whereas, you know, table four on a, on a Monday morning at 10am, he might not have done. But he, he was understood that, you know, people are watching and he wants to represent himself and the sport well. So, with that attitude, he could be dangerous again. It's very hard, though, looking at this draw to pick a winner, isn't it? I mean, they're all certainly, you know, the top, top eight in the world, those those seats, they're all likely contenders. It's a bit like an Agatha Christie story, this. You could pick any of them, really. You do sort of think, though, O'Sullivan... With his great record there. He's going to be dangerous with the, just the, the, the sort of setup of the tournament. It suits him. There's only two tables. It's quite a classy affair. They're well looked after. You know, it's not a cast of thousands. It's not multi-table. Um, we'll see. We're not seeing much of him of late. Uh, if I had to stick my neck out, and I, I don't have to, let's be clear, but if I had to stick my neck out, I do have a slight feeling, actually, that Mark Allen could, uh, could do something there. I don't, I don't know why, but I just feel, you know, he's one, some tournaments in China before. He won a couple of World Opens. He won the International Championship. And he's very strong mentally these days. Very steely. So if I had to pick anyone, it'd be him. But as Pang Zhongzhu will tell you, that's not necessarily a recommendation. Just to say, it's best of 11 up to and including the quarterfinals. final's best of 19. And they're played on separate days. So there'll be it's, it's going to be um, down to one table for the semis. And then the, the final on Sunday, the 17th of uh, September... Is best of 21, which is a kind of awkward uh, uh, number of frames. It's pu- it was purely one-upmanship. Is because <laughs> if you go back four years, some of the finals in China are bested 19. And the promoters are constantly trying to, to outdo each other. So they said, oh, we'll have a longer final. Best of 21 has never really been a thing. But anyway, we've had a couple of finals like that before. And I'm sure with this field, it'll be perfectly entertaining. Uh, coverage of the uh, Shanghai Masters is on Discovery Plus all week. It's on Eurosport as well. Check uh, various listings in different countries will will vary, but certainly Discovery Plus viewers, you can watch every ball on there both tables, and uh, look forward to uh, doing the commentary. I think the return to China does mark quite a significant moment for snooker for several reasons. Obviously, the pandemic was very difficult, and things had to shut down. We weren't quite sure how quickly the torments would be restored. Would it be? I mean, I th- I'll, I'll, I'll tell you on the circuit, the feeling was. It'll be one or two will come back, and then maybe next year another one. It'll be a gradual thing. I don't think we thought we'd have four major events in the first season, but that's what we've got. We've got the Shanghai Masters. We've got the Wuhan Open, the New Tournament, the International Championship. The World Open's been added. So are only really missing the China Open in Beijing, which hopefully will come back next season. Uh, but that's terrific. I mean, that, that shows you that uh, in China there is still huge support for and interest in snooker, and, of course, the sort of the wild card, if you like, in amongst it all was the the, the match-fixing scandal, which, again, I think a lot of people felt could have actually completely ruin uh, interest in China for snooker. But it, it doesn't seem to have. They've produced new players. We know that 10 have been banned and, you know, that's a great shame for the sport. But the fact is, life clearly goes on and the new players will be the new stars. And they will take the opportunities that some of these other guys could have had, had they not... Been up to what they're up to, so it's a big moment. Uh, it makes snooker more credible as a global sport to be heading back to China. The uh, tournaments are very lucrative. I mean, the Shanghai alone is two hundred and ten thousand. The winner, the other tournaments all have six-figure first prizes, and further down, in terms of the prize money spread, there's more opportunities for players to earn more money and earn a, a proper living. So it can only be good news. I think that these tournaments are back, and as I say, hopefully this will be the start of uh, another long relationship with China and uh, maybe even a couple more tournaments as well. I know there's talk uh, next season, possibly a couple more ranking events in various places so uh, this is good news I think and uh, it's going to be an interesting week and uh, of course the other thing about China and we'll see this as the season goes on, how how the travelling affects different players. Not everybody kind of copes with it and certainly there are periods where they are going to be for example the international championship finishes the day before the champion of champions. So there's going to be maybe a few tired people and that can affect players as well. Um, it's all part of sort of dealing with international sport. It seems glamorous and it, Shanghai actually is quite glamorous, but a lot of the travelling is just functional. It's just getting from one place to another. Um, and it can mess up your body clock. And of course in snooker, you do need focus and concentration and stamina as well. So some players, as I say, seem to cope with that better than others. But the main thing is it's back in China. And uh, a good week I think is pretty much guaranteed so before we move on to the emails it's uh it's the joke section now this is a new section I introduced to, to lighten the mood um, it's had a mixed reaction, but one thing I will say is people have been sending in their own jokes. We do have a guest joke coming up so there's three three uh three jokes coming up and one has been submitted by a listener. Uh, the first one is my own here's the first one. What did the exhausted and very small snooker player need? What did the exhausted and very small snooker player need? An extended rest. Double meaning there. Number two. This one's no good, I don't think. But anyway, number two. uh, What is the white called when pigeons play snooker? What is the white called when pigeons play snooker? Answer, the coo ball. The coo ball. And number three, now this is a guest joke from Neil Dagley, a listener. So Neil has sent this in. And it's quite topical because he passed away not so long ago. Why did Tony Bennett stop watching snooker in 1997? Answer, he left his heart in Silvino Francisco. <laughs> so Neil has sort of um, very much, uh, thank you for the joke, Neil. Has very much sort of uh, observed the, the general standard and gone with us, I think, there. Anyway, let's get into the, uh, this little palate cleanser, let's get into the emails. Gary from Ireland writes, I'm a massive Ronnie O'Sullivan fan. The man got me into snooker and I love watching him play. A few things I'd like to ask you and your listeners. Does he have any more records to beat, bar the worlds, do you think? And could you see him being the last of the class of 92, playing to a high standard, say mid-50s and 60s? Another intriguing one for you on the topic of records for the modern-day greats. Trump has the record of six rankers in a season. Neil Robertson, the first man to get 200 centuries in a season. Selby, the first to get a 147 in a world final. Does John Higgins or Mark Williams own any records? All I can think of for John is he's a record holder in the Welsh Open, but I don't think John cares about home nations events. Well, we'll come on to that, uh, Gary. But in terms of Ronnie O'Sullivan, there is one that he could take in a few years' time. Ray Reardon is the oldest ranking event winner on record. He won a ranking event when he was 50. Now, of course, Ronnie is the youngest ranking event winner. He won the UK Championship at 17. He's going to be 48 in December. So in a couple of years' time, he could break Reardon's record and be not only the youngest Ranking Event winner, but also the oldest. And that would be pretty remarkable, even by his standards, to have both of those records. That would just point to his incredible longevity. In terms of playing to a high standard in his mid-50s or 60s, I mean, I think certainly, you know, he's not mid-50s, it's only seven or eight years away. So... He could certainly play to high standard. I suppose the question is, would it be a high enough standard to still be an absolute top player? Would it be a high enough standard to still be winning tournaments? It's never been done before. No one's ever won ranking events in the mid-50s. Again, you think if anyone could do it, possibly he could. Um, my feeling is, you know, I mean, he's been talking about retirement since he was 18. My feeling is he will stick around. I think he will stick around and try to, almost as a challenge, to adapt his game and sort of fend off the... Uh, the younger players. The thing about Ronnie O'Sullivan, and there's many things about him, of course, but I think one of the main things is you don't think of him as a middle-aged man. He plays a youthful game. He has a certain youthful attitude and disposition and manner in general. So, you know, when he was turning pro, someone of his equivalent age would be, I guess, a Terry Griffiths, a Cliff Thorburn, and Dennis Taylor. They did sort of seem older. You don't really think of Ronnie in those terms. So. I'm not sure age is that sort of relevant to him, really. It's, it's more a sort of existential, existential, I should say, um, thing with him. You know, he he has a certain view of how snooker should be played, and I think that he will try and continue to play it that way, but also try and find a way of continuing to compete. And I get the feeling he will. Uh, in terms of the records for Higgins or Williams, they do uh, have a couple. I mean, John Higgins has been in the top sixteen since 1995, unbroken. So this is what is twenty? What would that be? The twenty ninth season that he's been in the top sixteen. I mean, pretty incredible. Twenty uh, ninth or twenty eighth? Anyway, it's a long time. No one, no one else has been there that long. It is under threat this season, but he's aware of that, and uh, every chance to to stay there for next season. Mark Williams, one record I know that he does hold is that well, he was the first left-handed world champion, but also he once won forty eight successive. First round matches in ranking events. Now consider that, you know, the the ability to do that week in, week out. 48 matches. It was over about five years. Fergal O'Brien, actually, friend of the podcast, um, was uh, someone who, well, was the, the person who, who ended that the UK Championship. I know that because the press were going to get Mark a cake if he got to 50. <laughs> and uh, we didn't have to because he ran out at 48. Fergal beat him. But uh, they're pretty significant records. Higgins, the top 16 since 1995. And Mark Williams, 48. First round matches won in ranking events. Next email from Mark Walsh. I really enjoyed the podcast. Sorry, I really enjoyed the podcast this week. Everyone is a hit in my eyes. Thank you, Mark. These two hot topics have been on my mind for a while, so please do use as filler whenever you're desperate enough. Well, (laughs) well, you're selling yourself short, Mark. I wouldn't say we're desperate, but anyway, let's see what people think. First, I'm sure that when I started watching Snoop in the late '80s, audience would would applaud half centuries. Obviously they don't today. Do you remember this or did I dream it? And if it really was a thing, when, it did, when did it go out of fashion? If I were to guess, it would be around 1992 or 3, and presumably because scoring 50 had become much less impressive, as standards of brake building kept improving. Well, just on that, I mean, yes, I think you're right. I think they did, um, audiences kind of did clap 50 brakes, but probably, as you say, they became so commonplace that you know, people sort of saved their hands uh, for, for bigger brakes to come. Mark continues, also on audience applause, is snooker the only sport where the theoretical winning of a game, or point or whatever, gets applause? I must confess that applause for the pot that takes a frame to the snooker's required point mildly irritates me. The frame is not over. Admittedly, it very often soon will be. But in that case, why don't we all just wait a minute or two? Find it especially silly when the pot is an easy one. The remaining balls are safe, and we all know there could be ages to go. I also think it's daft when commentators praise the crowd for this, saying something like, the audience are very knowledgeable. After all, we all know that half the crowd are listening in and just heard it as frame ball on their earpieces. Down with this sort of thing. Well, that's the big issues covered. Wishing you all the best and many more podcasts to come. Well, thank you, Mark. And uh, yes, I mean, I, one thing I do agree with, I think it's a bit patronising to, to sort of, you know, talk about the audience as being knowledgeable. I mean, basically what you're saying is they're capable of doing maths. <laughs> um, I don't mind applauding frame ball. It, it, it's sort of, almost it's acknowledgement for the player, really, that they're kind of they one foot in the, uh, in the right column, as it were. Um, so I don't mind it, but, uh, I quite like that you were irked by it. I think that's good. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's good to have these irrational dislikes of things. Phil Spivey on the ongoing crucible debate. He said, I found your recent podcast about the visit to Barry Hearn really interesting. Likewise, your subsequent comments about the future of the world championship in the crucible. Phil, those who are keen to move to a new venue should be careful what they wish for. It's easy to say a bigger venue would be better and make more money, but as you said, nobody has yet suggested anywhere definite that would actually work. And if a venue with, say, 2,500 seats was found, would it be full for all sessions like the Crucible seems to be? Just picking a random first-round match from the most recent World Championship, Ali Carter versus Jack Jones. Although a fine match, would it fill a larger arena? And the first few years in any venue would be marked by inevitable and endless comparisons, probably mostly negative. Perhaps more than that, though, the Crucible is iconic, and to move anywhere else means losing so much. The name has become so synonymous with the World Championship that the terms are interchangeable. We talk about the Crucible era, qualifying for the Crucible, the Crucible curse. That one is nonsense, but still. Crucible champions and so on. It's So tied in with the sport as a whole. I'll add one there myself, actually, uh, Phil. Of course, the Crucible Almanac. And Chris Downer, I mean, what's he going to do if they they leave the Crucible? Um, Phil continues, Maybe I'm behind the times, but I fear much of the magic of the World Championship could be lost if it moves. One final question, to which there may be no answer. Snooker tournaments have various suffixes, such as Open, Masters, Grand Prix, Classic and many others. Is there any specific basis for the way each tournament is so named? I know, or think I do, that for a tournament to be classed as an Open, it has to be Open to all professionals. But lots of Open tournaments have a different name. This is a bit niche and very pointless, but I thought if anyone knows, it might be you. Well, uh, Phil, a bit niche and very pointless. I mean, that could that could almost, um, I feel like putting that on a poster for the show, because that's essentially what this is. uh, A bit niche and very pointless. But it's a terrific question, that's, uh, because here's the thing, the UK Championship for a while in the 80s was known as the UK Open. That's a fact. Um... Go back, you'll, you'll find it was... Uh, I think David Vine never called it that. He always called it the United Kingdom Championship. But uh, a couple of years, it was the UK Open. Um, yes, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what the what the process is for, for calling tournaments what they're, you know, different names. I mean, as you say, Open suggests Open to everybody. But, I mean, the Europe, we had the European Masters recently. Now, there was a tournament called the European Open, but, but for whatever reason, the sort of names committee... Called it the European Masters instead. I think some of the other names, like Grand Prix and Classic, it was basically just to sort of vary it a little bit and give, I suppose, the tournaments different identities. Um, just uh, sort of mix it up a bit. But, uh, yeah, if anyone has any views on that, do let us know. You see, to me, Masters suggests, well, what it is actually in terms of the Masters in London, which is just the best players. We've got the Shanghai Masters... Which suggests the same thing, but of course previously that was a full ranking event for all the uh, professional players. So it's an interesting one, but uh, we don't have the definitive answer. Niall Owens said, I really enjoy the show and find your love and passion for the game really infectious. Well, thank you, Niall. He said, first things first, the Crucible is a special place for me, having visited with family, and it holds memories for me that will last a lifetime. As per usual, I'm booked in. For three days in April, and I can't wait. Meeting friends, going in and seeing the old girl, I can't wait. But on the future of the cruise, well, I think the 2024 tour Championship being held in Manchester and specifically the Manchester Central Building is huge. The venue for me is perhaps the most suitable location and the success of the tournaments, crowds, etc. will be key. The venue is superb. You've got hotels and the potential for a very large fan base. Sorry, for large fan view areas directly outside the venue. Of all the venues they play currently, Alexandra Palace and Manchester Central are the ones that are in play for me, in the UK at least. What do you think? Well, I've never been to, uh, thank you, Niall, I've never been to Manchester Central as a venue. I mean, obviously, I've been to Manchester and it, it is uh, very accessible. But uh, that's one of the things about, I mean, without sort of back, I'm continually banging the drum about the crucible, one of the best things about that place is actually the fact it's right in the centre of Sheffield. It's a very short walk from the train station. There's lots of, uh, you know, trams and buses and whatever. Uh, public transport in the city itself. So it's a city centre venue. But in general, that's where I'd like to see UK tournaments, in sort of large cities and, and places that are easy to get to and where there are things happening. I always thought Cardiff was really good. Welsh Open move from Cardiff. I thought it was great there, actually. Uh, Adam Fisher. Having listened to all of your podcast episodes, it got me thinking of the professional players with at least a few good years on the tour that you have mentioned the least over the years. My guess is that Ian Burns is a strong contender. What do you think? I know players need to do something to deserve a mention. No one gets that for free. But here's a free one for Ian. Have a blast of a season, Buster. <laughs> well, of course, Ian Burns, uh, and if you listen to all the episodes, you'll know that I had a dream about Ian Burns, uh, famously, a couple of years ago, where I dreamt he would qualify for the Crucible and draw Yan Bing Tao on the first morning. Now, it didn't happen. Um, he didn't qualify. And it's a rather niche dream to have, really. But uh, I I did have uh, uh, that dream. So Ian Burns has been mentioned uh, on the podcast. Not that it did him any good. Uh, Dreams are quite strange. I I dreamt the other night I was on a a speaking tour of Scotland with Nigel Farage. (laughs) I mean, what's what's all that about? Uh, Anyway. Fionn Lynch. Uh, I'm writing this email to praise a player who until this year I'd never heard of. Rory Thor has really impressed me over the last few weeks. I felt he played excellently in the first half of his European Masters qualifier against Chris Wakelin. I didn't see any of the match after the interval, but I was very surprised he lost 5-2 after the match being 2-2 in the mid-session, with Rory playing really well. He also impressed me in the Wuhan Open qualifiers, although he lost that match as well. I think he's long potting to be the most impressive thing about his game. Some of the pots uh, from below the pink spot up to the bulk pockets were mesmerising. I'd also like to suggest a nickname for him. As Thor is known as the Norse god of thunder, I think Rory Thor should be known as the Malaysian god of snooker. Finally, it would be my honour to open the 2023 season of benign meetings with snooker players. A few months now, this was a, a series that we had uh, last season where people—it uh, was actually banal, banal meetings, wasn't it? But uh, it was low-key meetings, not a lot said, not a lot happened, but uh, it was still it's still being recorded. And Fionn says, a few months ago, I went to a snooker exhibition with Ken Doherty and Jimmy White. On my way in the door, I nabbed a promotional poster off the counter of the hotel it was staged in. Once inside, I asked both players to sign it. Jimmy asked me, did you nick that off the wall? I replied, no, the counter. We both chuckled, they both signed it, and we all got on with our lives. Well, that's a strong contender, I think, for uh, early season. Uh, and I'm sure that it was a lot of fun with Jimmy and Ken. Uh, on Rory Thor, of course, we had a, a, an email a couple of weeks ago that he doesn't like tomatoes. He, was, he went to, I think, Subway in Watford, which was my recollection of the story, and uh, couldn't quite make himself understood about what he wanted in the sandwich. And we have seen outside mournfully sort of taking the tomatoes out. So if you do... Uh, I agree, Rory's he's a good... It uh, was Tor Chian Long, isn't it? He's his sort of full name, but they call him Rory Thor. Terrific player, but uh, don't ever give him a tomato. He'd, be, he'd put him in a bad mood. Uh, Simon Thompson, just a quick email to let you know, first of all, how much we appreciate your podcast. Thank you, Simon. I'd like to, he said, I'd like to second your point regarding commentary in, on qualifier matches on Discovery+. The coverage is definitely lacking something, having no context explained, or the subtleties of the game clarified by somebody in the know, as it were. Uh, Without commentary, this coverage can only ever appeal to a very small group of hardcore snooker fans. It's simply inaccessible if you don't have a good knowledge of the game. I think there's a wider point here about how snooker seeks to portray itself in the crowded marketplace of televised sports. Having no commentary on live feeds makes it look like a fringe sport that's unable to afford even the basics of what we would consider proper live coverage. Yes, it would be more expensive, but showing qualifying matches in silence does nothing for the reputation and image of the sport. I don't think World Snooker Tour is actually short of money, and spending a little bit to polish what is already an excellent product on Discovery Plus seems a no-brainer. How could this be achieved? Probably a rubbish idea and shoot me down in flames, but there are many players who express a wish to go into the media after finishing their playing careers. This might be an ideal chance for a broadcaster to use them in on-air auditions. It would also need somebody with a brain in their heads and knows what they're doing, such as yourself, but I would hope that this could be arranged. This would also allow a greater interaction with snooker fans, using social media to contribute to the commentary by asking questions, etc., as I recall, you did on Judgment Day last season. It's time. Well, Snooker Tour thought outside the box a little bit more and gave it a go. Well, thank you, Simon. I mean, on the point about to the players, I mean, that's what we do at the Championship League. The players are asked if they would like to put themselves forward to commentate, and quite a few do. So we had people like Ross Muir and Chris Wakelin and Alexander Ersenbacher all doing it for the first time uh, this year. And we've had people who've done it before, like David Grace came back, Rod Lawler, Gary Wilson... Uh, obviously, Joe Perry's very established. So it, it is an opportunity, actually, for the players to have a go and, and just see what it's all about. Uh, I did speak to someone from World Snooker Tour this week about about this whole thing, and they were explaining some of the issues surrounding it. And some of it is, I mean, it's quite boring, but, but also at the same time quite pertinent. Some of it is about actually just um, the, the company that they use because they do other sports. They don't actually always have the equipment available um, that, that is required to do it. Um And the the sort of solution to that is for World Snooker Tour themselves to invest in equipment, which obviously cost the money. So it, it, ultimately, it's always about money. I do think it's a shame because we've had eight days of good action on Discovery Plus, and you know it, it, the the production values could be a little bit better if there was just somebody there, kind of giving a little bit of context. And I think you know it's quite quite weird. Because a lot of people will will ha- be used to having sort of snooker on maybe in the background while they're doing other things. But normally you'll hear a voice alerting you to the fact that something's happened. Uh, that that hasn't been the case. You've had to sort of <laughs> monitor it all yourself. Um, anyway, let, let's see if that uh, if that changes at all as the season goes on. Now then, our American correspondent or our correspondent in America, James Cook, he says, Greetings from boiling Brooklyn. Yes, I'm back in New York City after a lovely summer ...in Muskoka, Canada. Just listen to the latest podcast today and have some offerings for you. Firstly, I agree 100% about the lack of commentary on the Wuhan qualifiers. As i am been in the US, I watch via Matchim Live... ...but I haven't watched as much as I would have if there was commentary. And whilst you're one of the best, I like the idea of giving the qualifiers duties to new people... ...players, ex-players, etc. Second, read the suggestion to use the Royal Opera House as a venue for the World Championship. Well, I've been there a few times to watch performances... And although I've only sat in the cheap seats, I can tell you they ain't that comfortable. Very little legroom is the main issue, at least in the upper tiers. Not sure people would be able to put up with it for long sessions. It does seem that the tide has turned from it'll never move from the Crucible to it's going to happen. But as another listener said, it's probably Barry putting pressure on Sheffield. My opinion, for what it's worth, the charm of snooker is that it's niche and a little anachronistic. Players in dinner suits, refs in black tie, etc., So a small venue for the World Final is on brand, as they say. The question is, how much should the game be modernised? To broaden the game, attract better sponsors and build the prize money, then modernisation should happen, and that means bigger venues, modern clothing, etc. But do we want to lose the charm in the process? Well, all good points, James. And what I would say as well is, I think people are constantly talking about how big Snooker could get without actually recognising how big it already is. I mean, the fact that we have a 17-day World Championship shown on, national, on our national state broadcaster and also around Europe and around the world, the fact that the winner gets half a million. I mean, these you know you don't have to go back that long, really, a few decades. That would have just seemed ridiculous and, and impossible. So snookers already hit the heights. I, I understand people feel it can, go, can be bigger, and that's, that's a perfectly fine and, and commendable ambition. But uh, maybe at times you do have to smell the roses a little bit and just look at what we've got. Now, a terrific email here from Stefan Norman, who's introducing his own new feature. He says, long-time listener, first-time emailer. There's a lot of talk about making snooker more global sport. In an effort to do so, I would suggest a segment of the podcast called Snooker Around the World, where someone from each country of your audience presents the snooker scene in their respective country. To start it off, I would like to present the snooker scene in Sweden. Well, this is a terrific idea, Stefan, and uh, it reminds me of the old Tony Hancock line about... Uh, the Radio Hammer episode where he says he's communicating with all these people around the world on, on the radio, and he says, uh, Oh, this is great. He said, I've got friends all around the world, just none in this country. Anyway, uh, Stefan continues, The first Swedish championship was played back in 1983, and since 1984, Sweden has represented the IBSF World Championship, has been represented at the IBSF World Championship. Current Swedish champ is Jim Johansson. One player stands out in the history of the championship, Kevin. Zerekhani has 12 wins. I hope I pronounced his name right there, Stefan. He says, we also play the Nordic Championship against Norway, Denmark, Finland and Iceland, which is a big deal. Since 1998, snooker is a part of the Swedish Billiards Federation alongside Paul and Karim. The highlight of the, of the year is the Swedish Championship, which is held in May every year. Leading up to that, the season consists of 14 ranking tournaments. As of last year, we also organise a team championship for four-man teams from each club. There are five organising clubs in four different cities. Stockholm, Malmo, Vaxjo and Orebro. Again, I hope I pronounced those, at least some of them correctly. I think Stockholm. I haven't gone wrong with that. Uh, He says there are roughly 30 tables open for public play in the whole of Sweden. last two years, 100 players have been playing the ranking circuit. 100 active snooker players out of a 10 million population is roughly the same ratio as Hungary, Poland and Germany. If the same ratio would go for the UK... There would be a mere 700 active players there. Uh, last year, Snooker Hallen in Stockholm hosted a Q Tour event, and is returning again this year, scheduled to be held soon, September the 15th to the 17th. Just on that, uh, Stefan Stephen Holworth told me he played in that. He said it was a beautiful place, and I think he's actually taking his his other half because uh, it's such a nice place. I think they may be staying on it for a couple of days to enjoy themselves there uh stefan continues outside of playing snooker a lot of people follow the world snooker tour on eurosport where kim hartman is the longtime commentator sweden's rolf kalb there's a lively group on facebook for swedes interested in snooker it has some four thousand four hundred members that is it i look forward to hear what the snooker scene looks like in other countries thanks for your great work with the podcast and commentary well thank you a terrific email that is a lot of information there and um nice to hear there's a good community in sweden as you say, the, the sort of number, well, the number of tables first and foremost is only thirty tables in the country, so obviously that reflects. I guess the number of people who are going to be playing is not going to be that high, but it's clearly there is a lot of people watch, and uh, it's good that you know the WPSA are, are taking that Q tour there. And you know, will there be a, a, a player emerging from Sweden in the near future? Let's hope so. But it's uh, terrific to hear all of that. And please, yes, anyone living, anyone else in the world, we have our dear friends in Ar- Armenia. Uh, who uh, were big fans as we know anyone listening who wants to just give a little potted history all puns intended of snooker in your country do let us know um, and uh, be delighted to read it out final email this week is from Mark and John they say we were recently attempting to buy tickets for the Masters in January and wanted to get tickets for our friend and his 8 year old daughter who's increasingly interested in the snooker we were surprised that C tickets clearly stated no under 14s were allowed I phoned World Snooker in Bristol to check this, and they discovered it was a C-ticket error, which was then quickly removed. Thank you to Katie from World Snooker for calling me back and sorting it out so quickly. To anyone else who wants to bring youngsters and saw this, you can now book your tickets. We also booked tickets for the British Open in Cheltenham and the English Open in Brentwood. Do you know if Joe Johnson will be at these events? We admire his commentary hugely and are hoping to bump into him for a photo to put on our Snooker in Wall. Well, firstly, on the in the case of the Masters, uh, that's good news that that uh, error was sorted out. On the subject of Joe Johnson, he normally does the hospitality there, so if you go into the Masters, you may well see him knocking around. He will be commentating uh, for Eurosport and the English Open. However, the venue is so small, um, it doesn't seem there's room for a commentary box. So he may not be commentating at the venue just because there isn't room. It's a tiny venue, um, not really great for a multi-table tournament, although very well supported last year. Um, so... You may not see Joe there, but at the Masters, you may see him knocking about, and I'm sure he'll be delighted to uh, to pose for a photograph <clears throat> so that's it i think uh, I think we've recovered a little bit from last week. I think there was plenty in that that episode and um, yeah there to be plenty to look forward to as we uh, move forward. I hope everyone enjoys the shanghai Masters and uh, keep your thoughts coming on all subjects related to the snooker world snooker scene podcast at mail dot com snooker scene podcast at mail dot com just wanted to mention on Friday, uh, this coming Friday, our, uh, our correspondent Thomas Bartley, who's uh, studying the uh, the first World Championship in 1927 held in Birmingham, he's doing an online talk as part of Birmingham Heritage Week, which hopefully has survived after it was <laughs> it was revealed this week that the uh, the local council have gone bankrupt, um, but uh, hopefully the, uh, that won't affect anything. So you can, uh, it's free online. It's an online thing. You can uh, check that out if you go to. BirminghamHeritageWeek.co.uk, and you'll find Thomas's details on there, and, and the details of his of his uh, talk. And I'm hoping to attend myself, uh, so look forward to what he's got to say. I know he's been uh, speaking to various people and uh, working hard on uh, getting the information. So, uh, as I say, that's uh, BirminghamHeritageWeek.co.uk, and uh, you can. I think it's twelve o'clock till one o'clock. And it's an online thing, so you just book your ticket. It's all free, and you can listen to what he's got to say on there. Um, But that is it for this week. So, uh, yes, thank you uh, for all the uh, correspondence, and I hope everyone enjoys the week. But uh, that is it from me. So, for now, as we always say, goodbye-bye. Sports Social
0: Podcast Network. us.